Glad you guys are, are here. And we are going to be in Daniel chapter 11 tonight, second to the last chapter of Daniel. And that's, and that's a good thing, because we only have tonight and next week left. So we will do chapters 11 and 12 in our final two weeks, and that will complete the book. And then two weeks from tonight is the finale to Community Kids season, and that always ends with the uh, Pinewood Derby. And prior to the beginning of the Pinewood Derby at 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, there's a, a hot dog dinner, a dollar for your hot dog dinner. So you get what you pay for, so don't expect much, okay? But uh, 6 to 7, then 7 o'clock for the Pinewood Derby. So we finish uh, next, next uh, Wednesday night. And chapter 11 is part of this second portion, major portion of Daniel that focuses in on the future of God's chosen people, Israel. The first seven chapters were about world history. And then in chapter 8, there was a transition from chapter 8 all the way through the end through chapter 12. The focus is in on God's, uh, God's future for his people, uh, Israel. And so with chapter 11... Uh, and chapter 12, we're going to see more detail regarding uh, God's predictions because God has planned what's going to happen with his people Israel. Verse 2 of chapter 11 says, Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of, of Greece. So let's uh, just break that down uh, a bit. Uh, it starts out in verse 2 saying, I tell you the truth. So now again, uh, the emphasis is upon reminding Daniel and by extension Israel and by extension us that what is predicted here is the truth. And from time to time, God does that. Even though all of God's word is truth, sometimes God will state that uh, very, very clearly to remind those that are receiving the message that this is the truth. And that's important for Daniel. It's important for the people of Israel because of the distress that they're in. Remember, they're in captivity. And God has promised a future for Israel and these prophecies are about assuring them that even though they're in captivity, that that is not a thwart to God's plan. In fact, God's plan is moving forward and will, uh, will come to fruition exactly as God has predicted. And so what I'm telling you, they're reminded, is the truth. Jesus used to do this, remember, in his earthly ministry. In the King James, it would say, verily, verily. And uh, that's from Latin, veritas, veritas, truth truth. Uh, in uh, Greek, it's amen, amen, uh, or amen, amen. This is, this is true. So Jesus would, would do that. Verily, verily, I say to you. Truly, truly, I, I say to you. So heads up, listen up. What I'm telling you is the truth. And so that's what Daniel is told. That's what we're told. What is laid out here is indeed God's, God's truth. And the truth is that three more kings are going to appear in Persia, and then a fourth. Now, who's the king at the time that uh, this, is, this is given? Well, Cyrus is the king uh, that is, uh, is on the throne of Persia at the time that this is, this is given. And it says there are going to be three more Persian kings. So you've got Cyrus as the first, and we saw from chapter 10 and verse 1 last, last week in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, chapter 10 and verse 1. Third year of Cyrus is 537 B.C. because Cyrus defeated Babylon in 539 B.C. So in 537 B.C., Cyrus begins his reign and the Persian Empire. And now chapter 11 and verse 2 says there are going to be three more kings then after Cyrus that are going to appear in Persia. And then... Uh, a fourth, who will be far richer than, than all the others. So who are these kings then after Cyrus? Well, the three kings who followed are Cambyses. I'm sure you guys want, if you want baby names, uh, just might want to write these, write these down. Uh, from 530 to 522, Gautama, 
was only one year, five, uh, 522. And then 521 to 486, uh, Darius the first, Histaspes. And then there is the fourth, and that's what verse 2 is focused on. And then there will be a fourth. So you have those three, and then the fourth, beginning in 486 B.C. to 465 B.C., is Xerxes. And so the one who is going to be focused on briefly here is the Persian king Xerxes. He is the fourth after, after Cyrus. And it says of him in verse number 2, he'll be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he'll stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So Xerxes, you might uh, remember that, that name, that this is the guy who made Esther his wife. So uh, he's spoken of at length in the book of Esther. And in Ezra, Ezra chapter 4 and verse 6, he's spoken of as, as well. Ezra chapter 4 and verse 6. It just speaks of the beginning of the reign of Xerxes. They lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, Verse 7 says, and then in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and then it goes on to give the history. And so Xerxes is a real historical figure, as was Nebuchadnezzar, as was Cyrus, and uh, he's the fourth after Cyrus as Persian king. And he is the one that is, verse 2 says, going to gain power by his wealth, stir up everyone against the uh, kingdom of Greece. And he did indeed do that. He went on a campaign against Greece. And that campaign went on for three years, 481 to 479 B.C. So he had a military campaign against uh, Greece, did Xerxes. He had an army of uh, about 200,000 men. He had a navy of hundreds of ships that he had gathered from all over the Persian Empire. And why was he doing this? You know, verse uh, 2 tells us that Xerxes, fourth from Cyrus, is going, to, is going to challenge Greece. But historically, what was it that motivated Xerxes to do this? Well, his father, uh, Darius, had suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Greeks in, uh, in 490 B.C., and so he undertakes to avenge the, um, the defeat of his, his father. In fact, I'm going to read to you in just a bit an historical account from a secular historian uh, from that century, from the 5th century B.C., who talks about the fact that he did this because his dad had been, Darius had been humiliated. You know, so sons do that. Um, you know that uh, part of the motivation for George W. Bush to go after Saddam Hussein, part of it, uh, by his own admission, was that uh, Saddam Hussein had tried to kill his dad. I don't know if you guys know this, but after George H.W. Bush uh, was out of the presidency, he made a visit to Kuwait, and as he was getting off a plane, a bomb went off. And it was an attempted assassination of the former, the former president. Now, he escaped and escaped unscathed, thankfully. But uh, Hussein was found to be behind that. And so part of, you know, certainly not the only and uh, probably not the, the, the largest, but part of the motivation for uh, going to war against Iraq and uh, killing Hussein was to avenge what he had tried to do to his dad. So Xerxes is doing the same thing. He's trying to avenge the defeat that his father had suffered at the hands of, of the Greeks, but to no avail. His army was defeated north of Athens. And that was just after this uh, large navy and all these hundreds of ships that he had were uh, smashed uh, just west of, of Athens. And this uh, Greek historian in the 5th century B.C., Herodotus, says this about uh, Xerxes. He says, Xerxes, being about to take in hand the expedition against Athens, called together an assembly of the noblest Persians to learn their opinions, and to lay before them his own designs. So when the men were met, the king spoke thus to them, My intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont and march an army through Europe and against Greece, 
that thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and against my father. So that's what he was looking to do. He tried it, but it didn't work. And that's what verse number two is predicting, that this fourth Persian king after Cyrus, Xerxes, will uh, stir up everyone against the kingdom of, of Greece. And this meeting that Herodotus talks about, that... Um, that Xerxes had with his men to plan, that is probably alluded to in Esther chapter 1 and verse 4. Esther chapter 1 and verse 4. And it speaks of a meeting and, a, and then some celebrations uh, that uh, Xerxes had with his military men for 180 days. So for about half a year, six months, he planned and planned what he was going to do with Greece, but uh, for naught. Verse 3, Then a mighty king will appear, who will rule with great power and will do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. All right, so... Moving forward, you know, this is being predicted in the time of Cyrus, the fourth king after Cyrus in Persia, is uh, Xerxes. Xerxes is going to have a campaign against the Greeks. He actually did that. Um, He was defeated. And then, verse 3 says, And then there is going to come a mighty king who will rule with great power, and he will do uh, do as he, he pleases. So who are we? Who are we talking about there? Yeah. Very good. All right. So you get the star. You can leave. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And uh, Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great, though, you're skipping a lot of years here. So between verses 2 and 3, you have skipped about 150 years. So you have blown through. There's a lot of people between Xerxes and, and Alexander the Great. There's Artaxerxes, Darius II, Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III, Darius III, do you get the idea that the Artaxerxeses and the Dariuses? And then there's, uh, there's Arces. How he got in there, I don't know. But uh, he snuck in without being a Darius or a, an Artaxerxes. So you've got all of these uh, rulers in between. And then it skips ahead, uh, verse 3 does, to Alexander the Great, 334 B.C. 334 B.C. to 323 B.C. So a relatively short time. He accomplishes a ton of, of stuff. Now, before we remind ourselves about what verses 3 and 4 say and how that lines up with what actually happened with Alexander the Great, <clears throat> um, the fact that why does God just skip over that? You know, you go from Xerxes to Alexander the Great, and then you got all this stuff that happens in between. Well, throughout the Bible, God does that. God uh, gives selective uh, history and focuses on selective people and selective events. And what God is, is doing is, is He is showing that these people at various points in time are doing His bidding and they all fit into His plan. And so, in effect, God edits and He selects certain people and certain events to highlight and that's what He's, he's done uh, here. And so what's it say then about Alexander the Great? He will rule with great power, and he will do as he pleases. And after he's appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of of heaven. So let's uh, remind ourselves about the fact that uh, Alexander the Great is going to do as he pleases, rule with great power. You remember he's already been spoken of in the book of Daniel a few times. Back in chapter 8 and verse 5, he is the this conspicuous horn that uh, is, comes out of the head of the beast, uh, or uh, of the male goat. And it says of him, he'll come from the west over the surface of the whole earth, and he will come so fast that it says he will not touch the ground. Remember that. That's how swiftly his campaigns will be. Swift his campaigns will be. So here he is, 334 to 323, as the Greek emperor through his military conquests. And he is makes lightning strikes as he goes across the then-known world 
conquering one nation after another. And that passage, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7 say that uh, he will rush at the Persian ram in his mighty wrath, hurl him to the ground, trample on him, and there's none to rescue the ram from his. That turns out to be Alexander's power. And so, uh, indeed, what verse 3 says about Alexander is true, that he'll rule with great power and he will do as, as he pleases. And then it says, though, that verse 4, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out. So we'll remind ourselves about what that is in a minute. But before we do, uh, let's just remind ourselves about the fact that this, this section that starts in chapter 10 that we saw last week and now continues into chapter 11, with a, which is the, the final vision of God's plan for his people in the book of Daniel. So what we started last week in chapter 10 is focused on Israel. That's the case going all the way back to chapter 8. But now chapters 10, 11, and 12 are the, the final vision that Daniel is given of God's plan for his people. And it's giving us God's perspective on the events that are going to happen to, to Israel. And it has hinted at, in fact, it's even directly told us in chapter 10, that behind the, the earthly kings, behind Osiris and a Darius and a Xerxes and all the other Persian kings, was a satanic prince. Do you guys remember that from last week in chapter 10? There's the prince of Persia. You know, and Michael had to go, this angel had to go and wrestle with the prince of Persia. And we saw for a number of reasons why the prince of Persia is not just the earthly king of Persia, but is actually a spiritual force. And so we've been, had the curtain drawn back, as, as it were, to see that behind all of this stuff that's being predicted in all these earthly battles is this, this spiritual battle. And God is waging effective war in the spiritual realm on behalf of his people Israel. He's used his archangel, the only angel in Scripture called an, an archangel, that is, that is Michael. And, uh, and in chapter 10, in chapter 10 and verse 20, it says the prince of Greece is about to come. So the, the prince of, of Greece, just like the prince of Persia, which was this you know, spiritual, spiritual force behind what's happening in the kingdom of Persia, same thing with the kingdom of Greece, so that means all of this. Now follow. Under God is Satan. And under Satan are his demonic forces, Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, principalities and powers, Ephesians chapter 6 calls them. So Satan is under God, and under, under Satan are these principalities that he sends as emissaries to different parts of the earth. And under this fallen angel emissary sent out by Satan is a man in each instance, uh, a, an earthly king. And in this case, now, Greece, it is Alexander. And so, you know, people can only see, secular historians can only see the earthly conflict that's taking place. But God in his word, because God has the widest perspective, and God sees not only the natural realm, but the supernatural realm and what's happening behind the scenes that we can't see unless he gives us insight. And how does he give us that insight? It is through prophecies given to his, uh, his, his prophets like Daniel. And so that's what God has done for us, for us here. And if these earthly kings of Persia and of, and of Greece, if they reflect demonic counterparts that are behind what it is they are doing, then likewise, Alexander the Great, now hear this, Alexander the Great in this prophecy anticipates a, a final, mighty, wicked, earthly ruler who will not just be a king from the north or a king from the south, which is going to be talked about from verses 5 through 20 now in Daniel chapter 11, but like Alexander, according to verse 3, he's going to rule with great authority and he's going to do as he pleases. Just take a look at verses 36 through 39. 36 to 39. 
Verse 36, notice, the king will do as he pleases. Now, God's already talked about now a king who, at this point, is in the past. At that point, was in the future. Turns out to be Alexander the Great, who will do as he pleases. But now, when you come to verse 36, it's looking further into the future. And Alexander is anticipating one who is going to come, who likewise is going to do as he pleases. But notice, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. And so Alexander is got behind him the principality of Greece. And behind the principality of Greece is Satan himself. And Alexander is pointing to one who will yet come, who will be the ultimate embodiment of Satan's, Satan's designs. And so you have Alexander spoken of in verses 3 and 4. And verse 4 says, After he's appeared, his empire will be broken up, parceled out to the four winds of, of heaven. Now, do you remember about uh, Alexander and uh, his kingdom being broken up? Uh, the Bible tells us that... Um, Back in 553 B.C., in chapter 7, when Daniel had a vision of the four world kingdoms, one of those kingdoms was represented by a leopard. That leopard was the Greek empire. And it says that leopard would have four heads. So here you've got now, in verse 4 of chapter 11, you've got parceled out to the four winds. Back in chapter 7, Alexander again, Greek empire this beast with four heads. And then in chapter 8, he appears as a a male goat. And chapter 8 tells us that his empire will be broken, and then there would come up four conspicuous horns toward the winds of heaven, and then there would come out this great horn, this larger horn from there. Uh, And so you've got these these four conspicuous horns. So all of that matches chapter 7 and the four heads, the four horns in chapter 8. They all match chapter 11 and verse 4, the four winds of heaven. So Alexander's, Alexander dies. He has no successor uh, in place, and his kingdom is broken up into parceled out, says verse 4, among his four generals. And now, after these four generals there's going to be a battle amongst them. And verses 5 through 20 uh, is all about the detailed battle between (laughs) these four generals. So if you read verses 5 through 20, you're going, yikes, I can't keep up with all that. And you're in good company because it is one of the most detailed uh, prophecies in all the Bible. A hundred, a hundred specific predictions about just the skirmishes that went on after for control uh, after Alexander died. And it focuses, does, verses 5 through 20 on, you see this over and over again, the king of the north and the king of the south. So what's that about? Alexander dies, four generals take over. The two generals that are most prominent of those four, they and then their successors battle for control over and over again, battle for control, specifically control of Palestine, Jerusalem. So the king of the north and the king of the south. So who got the north territory north of Jerusalem, north of Palestine, and who got the south territory uh, south of Palestine? Well, north of Palestine uh, is what would later be Syria and the Syrian dynasty, the Seleucid dynasty. So one of his one of his generals was Seleucid and his and his followers then after him in his line were the Seleucid dynasty, Syrian dynasty. That's to the north. To the south is Egypt. And the general was Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic dynasty. So you have the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. North, south, Syria, Egypt. In between, you've got Palestine, Israel, uh, Jerusalem. And verses 5 through 20 are talking about all that goes back and forth between them 
in order to gain control of, of, of Palestine. Now, uh, as I say, that's a very detailed and frankly somewhat tedious just details about all that happens between the north and the south in trying to control uh, Palestine. But, you know, God is not ready for Palestine to be overrun. Uh, God is not ready for uh, the time of the end. It's not his appointed time, but it is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the future. And when we come to verse 21, verse 21, all the way through verse 35, verse 21 to verse 35, are about one who would come out of that, one who would come out of the, the Syrian king of the north dynasty, the Seleucids, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And verses 21 through 35 are all about him. And he's called the despicable king. So he's an important guy. We've talked about him already a little bit, but we'll talk about him some more uh, in verses 21 through 35. Before we do, let me just uh, fast forward in order to keep you awake because there's all of this tedium and all of these names, and I, I understand. Hey, that's what's there, okay? But God's keeping track of that, and he does all of that stuff for a reason, to say, I've got a plan for my people, and that plan is only going to be executed when the time that I have appointed is fulfilled. But let's, let's fast forward now uh, from, you know, the 4th century B.C., and then into the 2nd century B.C., and Antiochus Epiphanes, and between those, all of these battles between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the north in Syria, the uh, south in Egypt, and all of them battling over Palestine. Why? So let's just talk about that. What, what's so cool about this property? Well, here's what's so cool about it. Um, God says back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram, Abram, you're going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance. You guys remember that? And so this starts now with Abram, later Abraham, the father of many, because God goes through the whole thing about I'm going to give you a seed, and he miraculously causes you know, Sarah to have, to have Isaac. And you guys know the story. And through Abraham's seed now, Come the, come the chosen people, the, the Jews. And part of what they have been promised is a land. Now, where is that land? Well, the land is known in Scripture as Canaan. It's known in Scripture as Zion. Jerusalem is, is otherwise known as Zion. So you'll read that in the Old Testament. You know, we call it in history Palestine and, the, and, and Israel, the land of Israel. So it's known by all those names, Canaan and Palestine and Israel and, uh, and Zion. But this is land given by God to Abraham and then to his, his descendants. And God makes a covenant with Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis. And he lays out borders for this property. And in chapter 15 and verse 17 of Genesis, if you're able to turn there, Genesis chapter 15. You know, Genesis 15 and just before verse 1, if you have headings, chapter headings, you know, my NIV says God's covenant with Abram. You guys see that? All right, so God's making this covenant. And then it says in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the, the pieces. This is the, the pieces of a sacrificed animal that God has laid out in order to ratify the covenant that he's made? Verse 18, On that day the Lord God made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Oh, <laughs> the river of Egypt. Anybody know what, the, what that is? Okay, yeah. So you got the Nile, you got the Euphrates. We've read about the Euphrates. In fact, in fact, uh, you know, just in chapter 10, um, 
Daniel was given this, this vision as he was on the banks of the Tigris. And you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and the Garden of Eden was, had four rivers around it, two of which were the Tigris and the Euphrates, and those are in modern-day Iraq. So you've got a lot of territory here, right? And this is territory that God's people have never had. They've never had all of this as yet. So when are they going to get it? Well, it's going to happen in something called the millennium. And so that's why you know, prophets, Isaiah, for example, talk about this kingdom that is going to come. And God's people are going to rule in a land, in the land. So God is still going to give that land as an inheritance. But Satan seeks to thwart the plan of God for his people. So God has given this land, but there has been skirmishes and fights over control of that land now for millennia. And, you know, it, gets, it starts to get really, I mean, it's always interesting in my mind, but it starts to get really interesting when in 70 A.D., now you start to fast forward from, from Abram and from Daniel, and you come after the earthly ministry of Christ, 70 A.D., and it's in 70 A.D. that the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by uh, the Roman general Titus. And the temple is destroyed, and the temple has not been rebuilt. But the Bible teaches that the temple will be rebuilt. Now, there's only one problem. There's like a really, <laughs> you know, like the second holiest shrine in Islam happens to be where it's supposed to go. <laughs> so once that thing gets rebuilt, look out because some stuff has to come down in order for that to happen. But anyway, so you, you've got that. And in 70 AD, the temple's destroyed. The remnants of the destroyed temple, some of them are still there. The, the western wall is still there. You can go and visit it. Sometimes called the Wailing Wall. That's the wall that you see Jews praying at in Jerusalem. That's a remnant of the temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D. But the temple itself has not been destroyed. And after that time, uh, Jews are scattered. And it's called, the, the fancy term is the diaspora. They are just dispersed, the dispersion. Now, just as, uh, just as a sort of an aside, but if you were with us Sunday morning and we started First Peter... 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter says, An apostle of Jesus Christ to elect exiles. Anybody remember us talking about elect exiles? Okay, good. But it says elect exiles of the dispersion. And that's an interesting phrase because Peter is writing primarily to Gentiles. But he includes them as people who have been dispersed as well, been displaced in the world, and that's why the whole theme of First Peter is how to live right in a world gone wrong. So it includes the Gentiles with the plight of the Jews, but the plight of the Jews is that they have been literally physically dispersed around the world in the, what is called the dispersion. Well, Jews have been dispersed, the land has been contested, and the Jews that have been dispersed from the land have been persecuted. And I took a, you find that in history, the anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jewish people. I took a class in college, Wayne State, on the Holocaust, a full semester on the Holocaust, and just gave the history of anti-Semitism. You'd be shocked at who all is involved, has been involved in just virulent anti-Semitism. Uh, Martin Luther... Martin Luther, yikes. <laughs> I mean, just now you can Google all this stuff, but just Google Martin Luther and anti-Semitism and some of the names that he called Jews. Uh, so this is in the 16th century, 1500s. Where's Martin Luther from? What, what? So um, Germany has quite a history <laughs> of anti-Semitism going back a long way. And as a result of the dispersion, as a result of the historic and centuries-long persecution of dispersed Jews, 
throughout the world, particularly in Europe, there developed at the end of the 1800s a movement called Zionism. Zionism. And a guy named Theodore Herzl, H-E-R-T-Z-L, Herzl, Theodore Herzl, uh, began to, to teach and to advocate for a homeland for the Jews, a regathering of the Jews back to Palestine, Zionism. And part of the reason was is because Jews have been so persecuted, they need a land of their own. So he got some powerful allies in that, did Herzl. Uh, Lord Balfour, B-A-L-F-O-U-R, of Britain, issued something called the Balfour Declaration. And what it said was, I paraphrase, but the British government supports a permanent homeland for the Jews. And, you know, you go back 100 years, and uh, the Balfour Declaration, which I think was 1917, uh, Britain was extremely powerful at the time. So the British government supports a homeland for, for the Jews. And ultimately, the League of Nations, which later became the United Nations, supported that as well. And what really brought it to a head was what? What do you think? the need for a homeland for the Jews. So you've got Zionism as a movement, you've got the Balfour Declaration, you've got the League of Nations, but then ultimately it was Germany and Hitler and the Holocaust. And so it's no accident that with World War II ending in 1945, the gas chambers being opened, the horrors of the Holocaust being revealed to the world. Just as an aside, I say the, the horrors being revealed to the world. You know, you know that FDR knew that the Holocaust was going on. If you go to the Holocaust Museum in, in Bloomfield, which you ought to do sometime, uh, there are newspaper clippings in the Detroit News about what was happening to, to Jews, but we just didn't want to get involved. But World War II uh, ends in 1945, and it's in 1948, May 14 of 1948 that Israel becomes the state of Israel with its first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. And uh, Israel became a state and has been a state since, 1948. Homeland for the Jews. Right of return of Jews to the homeland. So Jews begin to immigrate back to Palestine from all over the world. But it has been a hotbed of controversy from day one. Uh, they literally had to battle in order to be able to uh, return to the land and declare the state of Israel May 14 of 1948. And then from that point on, 1956, there was a skirmish. But the biggest one to that point was in 1967 when Israel was invaded and was invaded by its neighbors in what is known historically as the Six-Day War, 1967. Six-Day War. Now, here's the cool thing. Israel is what they currently have. Genesis 15, 17 says, I've given you a big area of land. But what they currently have is just a sliver along the Mediterranean. In fact, at, at one point, Israel, the nation, is like 10 miles wide. So... So it's really this tiny sliver. So you look on a map, and it's surrounded by hostile nations. Syria to the north, Jordan to the west, and uh, Egypt, for most of Israel's history, to the south. It's been hostile to them. Surrounded by hostile nations. They're attacked in 1967, and it's called the Six-Day War. But here's the cool thing about that. It only lasted six days. And the reason it only lasted six days is because Israel turned out to be a lot more powerful than these guys realized. But th that involves you. That involves me. That involves the U.S. Here's why. Because these Arab nations did not know that they were as powerful as they were. That's why they attacked. Then they found out because they were beaten back in six days <laughs> and thrashed. So where did they get all these weapons? Who's supporting Israel? Well, it turns out us. Which creates 
has created and still maintains some serious hostility toward the U.S. because of our support for Israel. And enter then um, a, a few things that would go on for decades. One, Israel chases back Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. So they chase them out. They invade. They chase them out. And as they chase them out, Israel takes some land. So they take some land to the north into Syria called the Golan Heights. And they take some land to the west called the West what? All right? The West Bank. And they take some land to the south called the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. So they take, and those, and they stay. Israel stays. They chase you back. All right, you invaded. <laughs> now our land has enlarged. I mean, not by a ton. It's still small. It's still smaller than Michigan. You believe that? It's still smaller than the state of Michigan but still bigger than, somewhat bigger than it was. Those territories that they took are known today as the occupied, what, the occupied territories. When you hear on the news and read occupied territories, that's what it's referring to. Territories occupied after Israel was invaded. You don't ever get that. See, it should always say that. It should always say the occupied territories are territories that were occupied after we were invaded and we chased you back. But it never says that. So it sounds like Israel just decided to take some stuff. But the truth is they were invaded. Six-day war, we helped them. So the occupied territories and the debates over that have been going on ever since. And the hostility toward the U.S. has been uh, intense ever since. Enter the Soviet Union. So we help Israel and the Soviet Union. We're in the, the throes of what's known as the Cold War between us and the Soviet Union, the Soviets start to arm the Arab nations. I worked with a friend at McLeod Steel in their computer department who emigrated to the United States from Russia. He was in the Russian army. He was in the Russian army in 1973. He, tell, he tells me that on the cover of night on the Black Sea, he was part of loading tanks onto ships from Russia to go to... to, go to uh, Syria, and uh, to help in the 73 war, which is known as the Yom Kippur War. So you have 67, the Six-Day War, 1973, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is Hebrew for Day of Atonement, so it's the Day of Atonement War. Israel's invaded again on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in, on Israel's calendar. And this time, the invading nations are being supplied by Russia. And they know that Israel's got arms. They learned that in 67. So they come better equipped. And it takes Israel I, at least a month. It's a month. It's two and a half months. It's two and a half months that this thing goes on. And Israel almost loses. Uh, you know, if you were to read what Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State then under Nixon, says about that they were scared to death that Israel was going to be over, overrun. They were able to finally beat that, beat that back. But it has been a hotbed since 1948, 67, 73, 1978. Jimmy Carter is president. And he gets uh, the prime minister of Israel and the uh, president of, of Egypt, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin, to Camp David. He has them there for a couple of weeks, and they hammer out something called the Camp David Agreement. The Camp David Agreement was this. After several years, Israel will withdraw from the Sinai Peninsula and give it back to Egypt in exchange for a peace treaty with Egypt. So Sadat signs that, Begin signs that. Israel withdraws from the Sinai Peninsula. Israel does not occupy that anymore. It's because they signed this peace agreement called the Camp David Accords. But in 1981, Anwar Sadat's assassinated. You know why he's assassinated? Because he signed that agreement. So there is serious hostility to making peace with, with Israel. Okay? So, 78, you know, Carter signs this, uh, this agreement. And uh, in between, 
the 70, or excuse me, just before the 73 Yom Kippur War, something that most of us in here are old enough to remember. Some of you are not. The kids back there. <laughs> um, but 72, the Olympics were in Germany, of all places. And what happens is, you know, these nine Israeli athletes get killed because they're taken hostage at the Olympic Village in Munich. And who are they taken hostage by? An organization that nobody had really heard of prior to that time, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Now, PLO. Now, what, is that, what does that name mean? Palestine, li liberate Palestine. What do you think that means? Palestine's the land. To liberate Palestine means what? Get the Jews out of there. So the Palestine Liberation Organization is about that. That's what the name means. So in 72, you, you know, you have that. 73, Yom Kippur. 78, Camp David. And then all of these presidents keep trying to have these agreements. The Oslo Accords under, under Clinton. They, they've all tried. And it continues to be, to this day, occupied territories, hostility. And so what's going to happen? What's going to happen there with Israel? Well, chapter 11 goes on to tell us that, uh, that there is uh, going to be the Antichrist that's going to come. And the Antichrist is going to come against God's people in Jerusalem. He's going to be fighting some wars. He'll be fighting wars against a king of the north. So chapter 11, at the beginning, verses 5 through 20, talks about the king of the north, king of the south, Syria, Egypt. That's Alexander's generals fighting it out to get control. But then later there's going to be one who will come from the north who is going to be more than just Syria. The ways described at the end of chapter 11 it is somebody from the region of what we currently know as Russia who is going to invade Israel as well. And then chapter 11 says there will be a disturbance from the east that will trouble the Antichrist because there will be kings coming from the east. And they will all gather in, in Palestine. And that is when the end of Daniel's 70th week will occur. Remember, he has those 70 weeks of years, and it's when these nations have gathered in Israel. And it is then that Jesus comes back, and then you have a final battle. And that's the battle of Armageddon. The nations are gathered, Jesus returns, and Jesus destroys the, his enemies and the enemies of his people. In the battle of Armageddon, now, when the Bible talks about the battle of Armageddon, I've talked to countless people over the years who have heard Armageddon. You know, we just use that as a phrase like, you know, something bad. You heard an explosion. You thought it was Armageddon. And so it's used that way. People think that's just a term for disaster. But it actually is a place. The battle of Armageddon is like a real place. It's Har Megiddo. And you could Google Megiddo. And it's the valley, the mountains and the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. And that's where the battle will be. You can visit there. I thought I was going to Israel last September. I was really looking forward to seeing all the sites. And, you know, <laughs> just kind of being, it would be kind of creepy, frankly. But to know that this is going to be the place where it's going, to, it's going to happen, right? But it's a real place. It's there now, and the Bible identifies where it's going to happen. And it will be the battle of, of Armageddon. So with all of that, that is what is Daniel is talking about when he's referring to you know, God's people and the travails that they go through in the land and the foreshadowing of all that would happen going forward, including the history that I just talked about, and then culminating in the gathering of armies in Israel where the Lord will return and defeat them. All of that is about God's plan to give a land to his people and Satan's desire to thwart that. And all the stuff you see happening and everything I said is all Satan's 
attempt to try to thwart that. But ultimately, nothing will, will thwart that. God's plan will go forward. Armageddon will happen where and as God has, God has laid down. So if you'll look at then chapter 11 and verse 21, one of these foreshadowings invading the land and Jerusalem, empowered by Satan, is Antiochus. Verse 21, he will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. With the richest province, when the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. And all the way down to verse 35, it talks about this contemptible, despicable uh, person, which in history turns out to be a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And you remember what uh, Antiochus, Antiochus did. Uh, his name, Epiphanes, means, is a nickname, which means madman. His lifestyle shocked those who, who knew him. His ultimate goal was to cause the Jews to be Hellenized. You ever heard that term, Hellenized? Hellene is the Greek word for Greece. So Hellenized means to make Greek. And so he's going to make the Jews Greek. And so they're going to worship Greek gods. And so he offers you know, a pig on the altar of the, the temple in honor of Zeus. He um, murdered the high priest. That is the prince of the covenant spoken of in chapter 22. That's the high priest. He murders him. And uh, he just does all sorts of um, horrible things against God's people. Um, he, the Sabbath and circumcision are forbidden. Swine's flesh is forced upon them to eat uh, pork. The official sacrifices are abolished. And it says in verse, um, in verse 24, he will plot, into verse 24, he will plot the overthrow of fortresses Notice, but only for a time. That phrase, but only for a time, (laughs) despite how despicable this guy is and contemptible he is uh, and how mighty he is and all the junk he's going to do and did, God is still in control. And that little phrase that says only for a time just says he's limited to what I allow him to do. And so God, God limits. In fact, Mark chapter 13 and verse 20 says, Mark chapter 13 and verse 20 says of the Antichrist, one who will come at the end, that uh, God will limit what he's able to do, quote, for the sake of the elect. If God did not restrain the power of Antiochus so that it was only for a time, end of verse 24, or restrain the power of the Antichrist for the sake of the elect, then God's people would be completely destroyed but then in turn God's plan would be destroyed as well. And of course God's not going to allow that. All right, so you read all the way through verse 35 of Antiochus. And then he's foreshadowing, he's a picture of the ultimate embodiment of Satan who will come that we call the Antichrist. And he's spoken of in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases, exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Now, again, when you read those phrases, he'll be successful until. How does God know how long he's going to be successful? Because God's got him in control. So those phrases are always just reminders, just like the end of verse 24, only for a time for Antiochus. Mark chapter 13 and verse 20, for the sake of God's elect, the Antichrist's power will be limited. Again here in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 36, he'll be successful until, 
the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. But God has determined it. He will show no regard, verse 37, for the God of his fathers, or for the one who or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Now, when it says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, that's a phrase that makes it sound like he is probably, this Antichrist is going to be a Jew. So, I mean, you talk about somebody who's satanically inspired. This is a Jew desecrating Jews. Um, and most Bible scholars think that the Antichrist will be, will be a Jew, but will uh, be uh, a European Jew because chapter 9 says the people of the prince who will come, speaking of the Antichrist, will, uh, will invade the, the Holy Land, speaking of the revived Roman Empire. So he's apparently a European Jew. And um, he will be so satanically uh, inspired that he goes against his own, his own people, honors not the gods of his fathers. Verse 39, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people, will distribute the land at a price. At that time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry, great fleet of ships. He'll invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, Moab and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver, all the riches of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Nubians will be in submission. But reports, remember what I said, from the east, and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. That's describing the armies from the north, from the east, as I described earlier, all gathering in Jerusalem. But he will be destroyed. Book of Revelation tells us where he will be destroyed, Armageddon, and who will destroy him. It will be none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Okay? So, Daniel is focused in on God's plan, his future for his people, the Jews, his chosen people, and the nation Israel. And here he's given us uh, an, a very detailed prophecy going from the time of the Persian Empire, then to Alexander the Great, then to his four generals, then to all of the battle for Palestine that's gone on for, uh, for centuries since, and then taking us at the end of chapter 11 all the way to the time of the end and the Antichrist, and it will all end there in Jerusalem. Now, God will then, Jesus will come, destroy his enemies, and Jesus will then set up his kingdom. And he will rule from a throne in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the Bible says. So the kingdom will be a real-life kingdom. And it will be a real-life kingdom on earth. And Jesus will rule bodily from a throne in Jerusalem. Sir? Anybody? Well, no. No, I mean, certainly it's for our sake to extend, but you're saying because all this is future to Daniel, right? And uh, No, it's, it's to simply say, just like he did with the image, you know, when, when Daniel was taken off to Babylon, he gives Daniel in chapter 2 the image of the statue. Head of gold is Babylon, then the Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire. Why is he telling Daniel that? Why does he repeat it again in chapter 7 with, a vision, with another vision? Why is he doing this here? The reason he keeps doing that is because God is saying everything that's happening now fits into the ultimate plan I have. So even for you, Daniel, what you're going through now and you Jews who are taken captive, all of that fits into my ultimate plan. And so God is trying to show I have such control of the world and its events that I can predict everything that's going to happen the kings that are going to come, the people who are going to take over, all of that. And so for you, sitting there in Babylon now, in captivity, thinking, God forgot about me, <laughs> where you are fits into my ultimate plan. 
And I'm in control of where you are, just like I'm in control of everything that's happened in the past, is going to happen in the future. I'm in control of what's happening in your present right now. So that's why he's telling them that. All of this fits into the grand scheme. And my plan has not been thwarted. It's still going to move forward exactly as I've described. And that is designed to be a comfort to Daniel and to God's people. All right, thanks.